Let us all turn to the Word of God today. It's the Gospel of Matthew and the chapter 28. The climax and the conclusion to this Gospel, first in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, taking us through from the moment of the resurrection in all its glory right through to the time when our Lord ascended into heaven and prepared his church, the saints of God, for years of service, fruitful service, in the course of preaching the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew and the chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, speaking of the the brilliance of that light of glory that shone from his person, his face in particular. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, why the wicked, in verse 4, they were filled with fear. But for the saints of God, things were far different. Oh, that we might take a glimpse again of the peace of God passes all understanding, and learn again the position of God's people in Christ. Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Though I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear. That is to say a reverential fear. Not the terror of the wicked as we saw earlier in the chapter, with reverential fear, humbled, having met the angel of God, had a foretaste of heaven, they make their journey as quickly as they can, but humbled in heart with their experience and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. As they went to tell his disciples, 
Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go, tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. They were very wise men who could see what was going on around them in the midst of darkness, the darkness of the night. And as well as that, they were able to see the disciples and see them steal away the body. That was some story. It was falling to pieces, falling into fragments, even as they, they told it. They were there to keep watch. And poor watchmen they were. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Praise the Lord for the reading of Holy Scripture and the preaching of it too. Will you turn with me, please, in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, chapter that was read earlier. Our text this morning is in verse number 19. A number in our church had been inquiring a few months ago about baptism, and we're having a baptismal service here in our church on Friday the 24th of February. And I wanted to speak for a little while this morning, just very generally, and I trust very simply about the subject of baptism, just in light of the service that's coming up 
in a number of weeks' time. Our text is found in Matthew 28 and verse number 19, before the Savior ascended up into glory, he spoke to his disciples, the eleven, on the Mount of Olives, and gave them this wonderful promise uh, that all power, in verse number 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then in light of that, he said, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations. The word teach there literally means disciple. Teach or disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or unto the end of the age. Let's just pray together briefly and pray with an open heart that God will speak to us and write his word upon our hearts. Let's pray together, please. Father, once again, we thank thee for the word of God. We thank thee for the Son of God, the Savior. And we praise thee again for these words given here at the end of his ministry on earth. And we thank thee, O God, today that he lives now in the power of an endless life. And thou hast given to us, Lord, the great commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And we pray this morning as we simply and we trust biblically and faithfully consider this subject of baptism, that thou wilt write thy word upon our hearts and help us, O God, to be obedient to whatever the Lord would say to us. We thank thee that thy commandments are not grievous, And we pray today that you'll lead us on to know thee in a deeper and fuller way. We pray for the help of heaven, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to open our hearts to receive of thy fullness. Father, hear and answer prayer and grant now thy help as we consider the word of God together. We humbly pray in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. There are two ordinances in the Bible that God has given to the New Testament church. And by the word ordinance, I mean two things that the Savior himself personally ordained to his church to be a picture of his work for us and of our union with him. The first one that we can consider is the Lord's Supper. You remember before going to the cross, the Lord took bread and broke it, and then took a cup and gave it to his disciples. And in that, we see typified the work of the Savior on the cross for us. This is my body, which is broken for you. And this is my blood, which is shed for you. And the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, or we could also call it communion, typifies or speaks to us about the redemption that was accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And it's something that the Lord desires us to do. This do in remembrance of me. And then after the cross work of Christ, another ordinance that the Lord brought to us was that of baptism. And we have it here in uh, Matthew 28 and verse number 19. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And if the Lord's table pictures redemption 
accomplished, baptism pictures redemption applied to an individual. And you'll notice here in verse number 19, incidentally, it says, baptizing them in the name. Not the names, but in the name. The word name there is in the singular. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And again, you've got a a very clear reference there to the Trinity. Three distinct persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. But the Savior is careful here to use the word name in the singular, indicating that these three persons are all one. They're distinct, but at the same time, they're all one. One God revealed in three distinct persons. And so whenever a person is baptized, they're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And these were the last words that were spoken by the Lord on this earth to his disciples. And we have remarked in times past that a person's last written or spoken words recorded are often deeply significant. And so the Lord lays down this necessity of baptism for his people before going back to glory. And as we consider today baptism, a few very simple things that I want you to consider today from the Word of God. First of all, we have here the biblical commandment or the biblical mandate for baptism. The Lord said to His disciples, go and teach all nations or disciple all nations. Or as it's recorded in Mark's gospel, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and bring people to the cross, and if they repent and believe, teach them and disciple them, and bring them up in the Word of God, and also baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. So, baptism is something that Jesus Christ our Lord Himself has instituted and demanded and ordained for his people, for his disciples. Now, it's important to say, first of all, as we think about the biblical mandate for baptism, that baptism is not necessary for salvation. You think of the penitent thief upon the cross, and he turned round to the Lord and said, "'Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom.'" And the Lord simply said to him, Verily, verily, or most assuredly, I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that penitent thief didn't have time to get baptized. But the Lord gave him an assurance that he would one day, or very that very day, be with him in paradise and in glory. But if the Lord gives us the ability and the time and the opportunity and we want to live lives in obedience to your Savior, we will want certainly to be baptized. In the day of Pentecost, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, just after Peter had finished preaching and was preaching about Christ and about his cross, and the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem were smitten by the Holy Spirit and conviction for sin, it says they were pricked in their heart, And their hearts were smitten, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, 
What shall we do? And immediately, in verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter said unto them, Repent. And along with repentance, of course, comes faith. Repent and be baptized. Repentance towards God. Faith in Jesus Christ. And then having done so, be baptized every one of you. And the Word of God is full of instances of individuals who were baptized. John the Baptist began his ministry as the forerunner of Christ, baptizing people in the River Jordan. And then Christ, as our great example, was baptized himself. Saul of Tarsus was baptized upon his conversion. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized as soon as he believed in the Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16, along with his family, as soon as they heard the gospel and exercised faith, they were baptized. In fact, the longest period that we can discern in the Bible between a person's conversion and their baptism is just a period of three days. And so baptism is something that Christ has ordained for his people. And if we're absolutely honest, it's not a difficult commandment for us to keep. Some of the Lord's commandments are costly and they're difficult sometimes if we're honest and they take a lot of discipline and they take a lot of learning and it takes sometimes effort to really pray or to witness and evangelize. And sometimes fulfilling the Great Commission can be a difficult and a costly thing, but baptism is something that is relatively easy. And in John 14, the Savior said, If you love me, then keep my commandments. And the Bible says his commandments are not grievous. It's not some legalistic thing or some slavish thing, but simply to show him that we love him. The child of God, the Christian, wants to obey him. So simply to begin with, the biblical mandate for baptism. Consider secondly, the script spiritual meaning of baptism. As we have said already, baptism is not essential to our salvation, but it is described by some of the old saints as a sign or as a seal of our salvation. The old Westminster divine said, baptism is a sacrament. We're in the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and of our engagement to be the Lord. So first of all, if we want to understand the spiritual meaning of baptism, we need to understand that baptism is simply a sign or a picture or an illustration of what we are and of what we have in Christ. Baptism is a sign or a picture or an illustration of our having been washed or cleansed. Water is in one part, a universal cleansing agent. If you want to wash your face or your body or your clothing or your cutlery, you'll use water. And before the Savior went to the cross, he took a basin and filled it with water and washed the feet of his 
disciples. And therefore, in Scripture, baptism is closely related to and closely linked to washing. Acts chapter 22 and verse number 16, it says, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Now, it's not that baptism washes away our sins or the water of baptism washes away our sins, but the waters of baptism are a picture of somebody whose sins have been washed away and they've been washed and they've been cleansed and the Savior has washed them. Whenever God regenerates somebody and they're born again of the Spirit of God, at the same time, in a spiritual sense, He washes them. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 speaks about the washing of regeneration. And that means whenever we're born again, the Lord applies all of the merits of His precious blood, and He cleanses us, and He washes the sins that were on our account. He washes them away and blots them out as a thick cloud. And the, the theme or the idea of washing is seen many times throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, whenever the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he gave a, a lengthy list of sins that were prevalent in the city of Corinth at that time. And you can read about them yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11. And then writing to the church and the believers at Corinth, he says, and such were some of you. That's how you were living before. But now you're washed and you're sanctified and you're justified. And he's speaking about the cleansing power of the gospel. Hebrews 10 speaks about our hearts being sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Revelation says unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First John 1 verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sins. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer. You're not yet a Christian. Your sins can be forgiven. Regardless of what they are, and it's none of my business, it's between you and the Lord, but your sins, whatever they are, in a moment of time, can be washed and cleansed and forgiven. And you can be set free. That's the wonderful power of the gospel. And even as a believer, whenever we become defiled, the Lord's still pleased to wash us and cleanse our hands and our feet. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who loved the Lord undoubtedly and fell tragically and deeply into sin, came to a place of confession in Psalm 51 and said, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Do I speak to somebody this morning and you're a believer in this meeting? Undoubtedly you're saved. You can look back to a time in your life whenever you first trusted Christ and times whenever you walked with Him and you enjoyed Him, but you've lost out with God. Jesus Christ can cleanse you afresh. He can forgive you again and again and again. And baptism is a sign of our cleansing. 
Baptism is also a sign of being born again. It's a sign of new life in Christ. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, and verse number 6, the Apostle Paul reminds the people he's writing to that our old man is crucified with Christ, crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's like the hymn writer who wrote those beautiful words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's what Paul is speaking about here. The old man, the body of sin, is crucified with Christ. He has taken responsibility for us. And whenever Christ died, the old man died in him. And whenever Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And whenever Christ rose again, we rose again with him. He's our great federal head, our great representative. And Paul uses the imagery of baptism in Romans chapter 6 and says in verse number 3, Know ye not, and this is not speaking so much of physical baptism, but a spiritual baptism in Romans 6. We were baptized into Christ. We were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the body or by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And in the life of a Christian, all of those things spiritually have already happened. We've been baptized into Christ, into his death, and into his resurrection. And we walk in newness of life. And therefore, water baptism is a picture of that having died and been buried, if you like, and raised up again, washed and cleansed and brought into newness of life. Baptism by immersion pictures spiritual death and resurrection. And then furthermore, not only is baptism a sign of our cleansing, a sign of new life, but simply it is also a sign of obedience. The Word of God says, repent, and then be baptized. And so whenever a person repents of their sin and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they're saying, my sins are forgiven, I'm washed, I'm cleansed, I've been buried, I've died in Christ, I've risen again, I'm a new creature, I'm a new person, I want to show to the world by baptism what the Lord has done for me. Repent and be baptized. Christ exhorted his disciples to go into all the worlds, make disciples of all nations. That includes preach the gospel to all people. And whenever people respond to the gospel, teach them, encourage them, exhort them, instruct them from the Bible, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so baptism is simply a step of obedience and it shows to the world that we want to go forward in newness of life and in a life of obedience to the Lord. And it is also a sign of our following in the footsteps of the Savior. First Peter, Peter says that Christ has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And the Lord was baptized himself in the River Jordan. And I believe his baptism 
pointed his people to the cross, that he would die for our sins and be buried and rise again. And if Christ himself was baptized, he has laid that down first and foremost as an example of his perfect obedience to the Father and of an example and a pattern that he has laid down for us to follow. So baptism is a sign. Baptism is also a seal. Now, whenever we use the word seal, we do not mean something that secures our salvation or even something that settles it. But the word seal is, is given as the idea. If you know if somebody used to write a letter years ago and they wanted to show to people that that letter was authentic, maybe a king, and they would take his signet or his seal and they would put that wax over the envelope and seal it and it showed the letter is authentic. And that's why the old reformers said that baptism is not only a sign, but also a seal, and it shows to the world, and even confirms in our own hearts, that what we have in Christ is real, and what we have in Christ is authentic. It's like wearing a wedding ring. Now, somebody could put a ring in their finger, and they might not be married at all. But whenever somebody gets married, and there have been many weddings in this very building, and one of the first things that young couples do when they get married, they exchange their vows, they promise to love one another and, and be there for one another and support one another, and then they exchange rings, and they put their ring on the third finger of the left hand. And that ring, if you like, is a seal. It, it's a constant reminder that we're in a union, in a relationship with another, and they love us, and we love them. And therefore, we could say that baptism is like a seal. It's a reminder constantly that we have been washed and cleansed, and we have been born again of the Spirit of God, and we're to walk now in newness of life in the footsteps of our Savior. It's a, a reminder. It gives us a, a constant reminder, an assurance, if you like, that we have died in Christ, we've been risen, raised again, and we've been joined to our Savior. The biblical mandate for baptism, it's a simple Bible commandment. The spiritual meaning of baptism, it's a sign, it's a seal. But what about the various modes of baptism? How is a person to be baptized? Now, to me, this is not the most essential thing with regards to baptism, but I do believe it has its place, and certainly I have my own convictions. There are three common modes of baptism. Some people, whenever they're baptized, they get sprinkled. And there's no doubt that in the Old Testament Scriptures, there are many references to people being sprinkled. We read in the book of Numbers, chapter 8 and verse number 7, concerning the Levites, the children of Israel, that they're to be taken from among the, the children of Israel and cleansed. And the Lord says to Moses, And thus shalt I do unto them to cleanse them, sprinkle water of purifying upon them. And the theme of sprinkling comes up several times in the Old Testament, and some people follow it through, and they say, well, if it was legitimate in Old Testament times, therefore it's legitimate in New Testament times for baptism as well. And then others believe in pouring. And the Word of God, again, in the Old Testament Scriptures, speaks about pouring. And at various times in the Old Testament economy, the ceremonial washings were by pouring. 
And you can read a lot about that in Leviticus chapter 14. And again, some as they follow sprinkling through, others follow pouring through. And they say if it was legitimate in the Old Testament, it's legitimate in the New. And then there are others, like myself, I freely admit, who hold to baptism by immersion. In my view, this is the biblical mode. The very word baptism, it literally means to make whelmed or fully wet. The Greek word baptizo comes from a root word bapto, which means literally to dip. And that's why a number of years ago, people who practiced baptism by immersion and were coming out maybe of the Church of England or maybe even the traditional Presbyterian form of baptism, and they were baptized in rivers and streams and tanks and and the sea perhaps, they were often referred to as the dippers. But if we look at the word baptism honestly, it certainly has that connotation of being immersed of being dipped, of being washed and whelmed over completely with water. I believe in baptism the picture is one of complete cleansing. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And I believe baptism by immersion shows that the whole man has been cleansed. He that is clean needeth not save to wash his hands and his feet, but is clean every whit. And if you were to immerse something completely in water, it becomes completely immersed. It becomes completely washed. And I believe that that, in a sense, is the picture of baptism. It also shows our complete conversion and union with Christ. We have mentioned already that our death and resurrection in Him is typified by immersion, somebody going underneath the waters and being raised up again. That is seen in baptism by immersion. And if we're absolutely honest, and if I try to be honest with Scripture, it seems very clear to me that all of the New Testament accounts of baptism seem to have been by immersion. Whenever the Savior Himself was baptized, it says in Mark 3 and verse number 16, And when they were come up and then out off the water, so the Lord was not sprinkled, we believe, or even poured, they went down into the river Jordan. And the Scripture says they came up and then they came out off the water. It says in John chapter 3 and verse number 23, that John the Baptist was baptizing in a place called Anon near to Salem. And the reason he chose that to be the place to baptize people was because there was much water there. And John was, of course, baptizing many, many people. And he chose a place where there was much water because he knew if I'm going to baptize these people, I'm going to need a lot of water. Now, if he was sprinkling the people, that would have not have been and necessity. And again, the Ethiopian eunuch, whenever he was baptized in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 39, it says again that he came up and he came out of the water. And they found a place where there was plenty of water for them to be baptized. So my conviction is the Bible mood for baptism is by immersion in water. One last thing in conclusion. We have thought about the biblical mandate for baptism, the spiritual meaning of baptism, 
the various modes of baptism, then lastly, the legitimate subjects of baptism. Who is to be baptized? Again, there are two views. Of course, you'll be very well aware that there are many that hold that infants, babies, can be baptized. And in that school of thought, there are two different thoughts as well. The Roman Catholic Church and the what we could call Episcopalian churches, the Church of Ireland or the Church of England, hold that any baby can be baptized. Whenever that baby is baptized, it becomes a, an inheritor, if you like, to the kingdom of God, and it's brought in formally into the church of Jesus Christ. And they teach baptismal regeneration, which I have no scruple saying has no foundation whatsoever in Scripture. And in my conviction is a very dangerous teaching to say that whenever you're baptized, original sin is washed away and you're brought into the kingdom of God. Baptismal regeneration is taught by the Roman Catholic Church or even the Church of Ireland or the Church of England as well has no foundation in Scripture. But the old Presbyterians and many good brothers that I know even in the ministry hold to what they called pedo-baptism or covenant baptism. They take the Old Testament uh, institute, if you like, of circumcision, that Abraham was circumcised, and then his children, his offsprings were circumcised as well. And that was a sign and a seal for the Jewish people in the Old Testament economy. And they follow it all through. Well, if we're in a covenant of grace, uh, baptism could legitimately replace circumcision. And therefore, the children of believing parents can be baptized as well. And I know many good people at all to that. And they would acknowledge and say, it doesn't cleanse them, it doesn't wash them, it doesn't regenerate them, but it's like a promise, a covenant. And we're bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And this is a sign and the seal that we are entrusting our children to the Lord. And they believe that it brings them, in a sense, into a, a place of promise, if you like. I know good people that hold to that. Even in their own denomination, there are those who, who hold to that as well. But my question is simply, is that consistent? Surely, then children, unconverted, could also sit at the Lord's table. Because in the Old Testament economy, children could sit at the Passover feasts. But we acknowledge that the Lord's table is for the Lord's people. And I believe as well that baptism is for the Lord's people. The Lord's table typifies redemption accomplished. Baptism typifies redemption applied. It's my conviction. And I know many might disagree, and you might disagree as well. That's why our church takes an open stand on this issue. Uh, but I believe that baptism is for believers only. You say, well, why do you believe that? Because of the biblical formula, first of all. Repent and be baptized. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Furthermore, as I look at the Word of God honestly, as I come to the New Testament honestly, it seems to me that there is no clear record at any time of an infant being baptized in the Bible. I believe whenever there's an important Bible doctrine or an important Bible practice, you'll find either clear proof texts 
or clear examples to back up the arguments. You can nail it down and say, this is clearly and unmistakably what the Bible says. But if we're honest with the New Testament, there's no clear instance of a child or an unregenerate infant being baptized. Christ was circumcised and Christ was baptized. Saul was circumcised. Saul was baptized. Many of the people that John the Baptist were ministering to, Jewish people, circumcised and also baptized. And then if you study later on in your own devotions, Acts chapter 15, this great controversy entered into the early church. And certain Judaizers, they they came along and they said in Acts chapter 15, And verse number one, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And they began to say to people that were trusting in Jesus Christ, you need also to be circumcised if you're really to be saved. And in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. And they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men should go to Jerusalem on the apostles and elders about this question. And they had, if you like, a great presbytery meeting. Elders from different churches met together. And there's Presbyterianism in Scripture. And they brought this issue of the necessity of circumcision to the people, to the table. And they began to say, now there are people coming into the church, as they did in the church at Galatia. And they tried to bring circumcision in there. And you read the book of Galatians, it speaks about this as well. And they began to debate it and talk about it. Now, if baptism replaces circumcision, the simplest way to end the dispute is to simply say, this is the case. Circumcision is gone, but now we're baptizing instead. Infants and adults. But baptism isn't even mentioned in Acts chapter 15 in relation to circumcision. And it would have been a valid argument that have ended the controversy, but they didn't mention it at all. But dear friends, the simple truth of the matter is the Word of God calls God's people to be baptized. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've repented of your sins, you've been washed and cleansed and you've been born again, and you want to follow on to walk with God in newness of life, baptism is a simple sign of that. And it'll be something that'll give, I believe, a sense of assurance as well in your own heart. May God write his word upon your hearts. I'm not trying to bend arms up backs and say, I want you to participate in this baptismal service, but maybe it's something that you've thought about, something that you've prayed about, or something that today you've been called to consider for the first time. May God write his word upon our hearts.